Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name's Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville 106.5 FM. This show is about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that's important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science. So, let's get started. Well, it's that time of year again. November, time for the annual meeting of the Kentucky Academy of Science. And for the third year in a row, Bench Talk will be bringing you highlights from this year's KAS conference. And you're already acquainted with him if you ever tune in to Kentucky Governor Andy Beshear's daily news conferences about the coronavirus. Yes, it's Dr. Stephen Stack, Commissioner of the Kentucky Department of Public Health. So we can't bring you Dr. Stack's entire talk today because we just don't have enough time, but we'll bring you the first half and and the rest of the talk we'll broadcast later. The title of this November 6, 2020 talk was COVID-19, Applied Science in Action. Commissioner Stack is introduced by longtime bench talk contributor and president of the Kentucky Academy of Science, Dr. Trent Garrison. Oh, by the way, Trent Garrison has recently launched a new podcast. It's called Prodigious Kentuckians. You can catch it on Facebook or YouTube or Spotify. Prodigious Kentuckians with Trent Garrison. Anyway, take it away, Trent. So I'm Dr. Trent Garrison. I'm the president-elect of Kentucky Academy of Science. And uh, before we get started and introduce our keynote for today... I wanted to, first of all, thank our sponsors, Sullivan University, Eastern Kentucky University College of Science, and the Kentucky Science Center. And we would encourage all of you, anyone listening who is not already a member, to become a member of Kentucky Academy of Science. You can go to our homepage. You can just search for it in Google or KentuckyScience.org and go to the tab that says Membership. It's very cheap, and we welcome anybody. We believe that a very scientifically literate populace makes a better commonwealth. So let me give you a little bit of background for a keynote today. Dr. Stack was appointed by Governor Bashir in early 2020 as Commissioner for Public Health. He is a board-certified emergency physician with over 20 years of experience. He was the first board-certified emergency physician to be elected as AMA Board of Trustees. And in 2015, he was the youngest president of the AMA in a very long time, since 1854. He's also an adjunct professor at the University of Tennessee. Uh, he did his medical education and residency at Ohio State and a master's of business administration at UT. Dr. Stack and I have communicated on a, a number of occasions with COVID studies and things like that in the past. So it's an honor to welcome him here. We very much appreciate your time. I know you're a very busy person. We've been working on this meeting for a long time, and we thought you would be a, a, a really excellent person to have at this meeting, given everything that's going on here. And when we planned this meeting, we didn't know the COVID numbers would be what they are at this point in time. So uh, we just had some of our highest days, so uh, uh, very timely. So with that, I will turn it over to Dr. Steck. Thank you very much for being here. Uh, Trent, thank you very much for having me. So it's a pleasure to be here. I, I did take a look before 
coming on at the Kentucky Academy of Sciences website. And I had a chance to look at the agenda for this meeting, which I've got here on another screen. And I, I got to say, I'm impressed. There is quite quite the list of interesting talks and topics and the diversity of topics you've got here. And I will tell you that in the context of such a, a rich and wonderful array of scientific exploration, my talk is going to be very different. So it's going to be more along the lines of, of a keynote. But I hope if you stay with me for this journey, and I'll take you for maybe about 25 minutes and then stay for questions, I hope you'll find some value in the, the, the non-COVID message that I leave uh, throughout this in addition to the COVID information I hope I get to share with you. So I'm going to take you on a little journey. I'm going to share with you things you already know, but I'll share it within the context as I see it. And I'll give you some perspective on how I view this disease we're facing, uh, the journey we've been on, where we currently are and where we're heading. And then I'm going to try to put it in context of your mission here, as I understand it. So I looked again at your website and I see that your mission is to foster scientific discovery and understanding in Kentucky. And I want to share that, but I, I want to share some thoughts about how I see myself in the context of science and the role that I occupy and the value I place in it, but then also how I use it. So let's talk COVID here for a few minutes. So as you all well know, I suspect, uh, SARS-CoV-2, SARS-Coronavirus-2, was not a known pathogen in the human species until late last year. So sometime, we think, in November, December last year, China had its first human cases, and those cases uh, started to spread within the uh, province of Wuhan, and they spread very rapidly. They spread so rapidly that, that there was evidence you know, satellite imagery of them building multiple large hospitals to accommodate the surge in patients. The patients were particularly sick. They required intensive care unit level of medical care, and a lot of them had respiratory failure requiring mechanical ventilation, all of which things are generally resources available in relative small quantities in society and which were severely overrun caused a, a lockdown of an area that was well over 30 million people. <clears throat> and the kinds of activities you just find hard to believe. I mean, they're staggering, absolutely staggering in their sheer scale. That disease, a disease none of us knew about that did not exist to our knowledge, that caused such rapid disruption for so many people, took almost no time whatsoever to spread around the world. So by the time we were in February, you had cases in northern Italy. And if you look back at the first, uh, there's a, a scientific uh, communication, I think it was probably a, a letter to the editor or a scientific letter in, in the Journal of the American Medical Association. There was a, a, an Italian critical care physician who wrote about, and it almost reads like a Charles Dickens novel, you know, like it was the best of days, it was the worst of days, where it starts out on such and such a date a patient presented to the emergency department with the following. And here's what was absolutely astounding. The metaphor of a tsunami is absolutely, I think, applicable to what they experienced. A tsunami, for those of you who have ever watched a video of it, doesn't, it's not like a, a sudden instant cataclysmic problem. It's sort of like you just notice the water levels rising at the beach and then the water level keeps rising and it doesn't stop rising. It continually rises. And then once it continues to come, 
just a steady, unrelenting wall of water continues to come for a seemingly endless period of time until it just floods and overwhelms everything in its path. So hopefully I've described a tsunami for those of you who know it somewhat well visually. That's what happened with this illness in China, in Northern Italy, and then in other parts of Europe. When the patients first showed up, when they first saw, oh my gosh, we've got a couple of people who fit that description. Very shortly after that, you went from a couple to many, to lots, to, oh my gosh, the hospital is overrun within days. All right. It's, it was that dramatic. So in the beginning, when it went from China in December to the first signals, oh my gosh, there could be a problem over there in January to Northern Italy being overrun by February. Then we had our first case in Seattle at the end of February or sometime mid to late February. And it was all a travel related illness at that point. The single biggest thing you could do to curtail its spread was identify people who had traveled to high-risk areas and isolate them or quarantine them and try to mitigate the spread. But then we had our first cases in the first week of March. It started popping up everywhere. So New York had its first cases here in Kentucky. Friday, March 6th was our first case. But over that span of a week or two, you started having states across the nation have positive cases. Now, at that time, we were using tools that epidemiologists created. So you had essentially, this was, I don't know, for those of you who are, who are basic scientists, this I would think this would be fascinating. If you want to look at modeling and how you use data, we started from a, a standstill. And so if you have no disease and you dropped it into a community and you had unmitigated spread, what would happen? That's wonderful set of variables to do modeling, right? All those models were incredibly useful and every single one of them were entirely wrong. All right. So, and I mean both things non-pejoratively. They showed us just how horrible unmitigated spread of SARS-CoV-2 could be in a population. And those models were built based off of real experience in places in China and in Northern Italy. And so we knew that they were real scenarios. And then it happened in New York City, right? So, I mean, it jumped to a third continent. It happened in New York City. And so we knew that there was validity to the models, but then we started to interact with the system and change the variables, right? So the, the terror that was unleashed, and I would say it was an informed terror. This was not panic. This was informed terror. This was senior level decision makers advised by public health and science experts saying, this is really bad. If we don't take dramatic actions, the consequences will be of the sort none of us would, would accept in terms of loss of human life. And at that point, we didn't even know about the potential for long-term disease. We just knew about the short-term disease. And so what you saw happen, I, I think, you know, is really unprecedented in the modern era. You had whole nations quarantining entire regions, locking out visitors from other countries and shutting down whole societies. And so you actually had whole states describing shelter in place as a public health order. I mean, that would be inconceivable. If you were to have asked this scientific community or the public health community, what do you think the likelihood is in the United States of America, governors would be declaring whole societies shut down? You'd say, oh my God, that you would not imagine that in the Western democracy. You wouldn't imagine it, but it was happening 
in democracies around the world, which is really a sign that I would hope people who attend to science and reason would say, this is not a drill. This is a lot of people who have access to the best information and advisors available making some pretty dramatic decisions because the consequences look so horrible. And so in those early months, there were all sorts of crises, right? Who would have thought that putting all of your supply chain in China would be a bad idea? Like, who would have thought? And I'm not picking on China, any nation, right? If you consolidate things so much that the failure of that one area causes a cataclysmic collapse, that's kind of a problem. So, you know, a lot of our personal protective equipment for medical uh, care is manufactured in the Far East. And so when the Far East was the first region hit and they went offline, guess what? Their manufacturing capacity was hampered. And then guess what? When you now have a new global pandemic with a pathogen that rapidly went around the world and all of a sudden, all of humanity needs the same stuff and the people producing it aren't producing it, guess what happens? You have a real scarcity. You have a real scarcity real fast. And so at that time, people didn't know about the disease, didn't have the resources needed to protect themselves, even in the healthcare setting. And so the only option was really you had to shut things down. You had to try to prevent the spread of that disease. You had to try to prepare the people upon whom we are all going to rely to keep us safe and treat us if we get sick. And you had to learn as fast as you can. So now in the context of science, there's some things about this that we should just marvel at where humanity has come in terms of our use of science and ability to do stuff. The genome for this virus was mapped really in early January. I mean, just think about that. Remember the Human Genome Project, how long it took to map the human genome. And here they mapped the genome for this virus and posted it for public knowledge all in the early January for anyone who could use it to try to um, design mitigation strategies, therapeutics, vaccines. And now we have a process for, for vaccine development that typically takes seven to 15 years. And for some diseases like HIV, we still don't have a vaccine. And that was in the mid in my 1980s that that first arrived. So we have managed in the span of less than 12 months to go from, well, let's say, let's say a little over 12 months if you want to go back to December um, by the time we're done with this. About one year, go from pathogen identification, basic science development, production of candidate vaccines, more than a hundred of them across the world, numerous trials underway, multiple candidates in phase two and phase three of clinical research trials. And we have at least two candidates who we believe within weeks will have reached sufficient enrollment. Now, we know they've reached enrollment. The challenge is, will they have enough case experience to be able to then determine the efficacy of the vaccine in addition to its, its safety? But we very well could have in the United States two vaccine candidates being considered for emergency use as early as late November or December. So that is a one-year pathogen discovery to vaccine approval process. Now, nothing about that is standardized. Nothing about that is the typical thing. They had to do a lot of parallel tracking of processes. They had to be willing to put a lot of money on the table to front economic risk for developers. But just think about that is nothing short of a modern human marvel to have pulled that off as quickly as we did. Now we have to hope they work. And the proof will be, and once we start using them, 
do we actually blunt further this disease? So the other thing I'll draw attention to in these early months, in addition to being healthy at home, is what we called it here in Kentucky, or shelter in place is what other states called it. We have had to evolve our messaging continuously based on new knowledge and understanding. So part of this was, in the beginning, the only masks that were generally available were medical-grade masks, right? So they were procedural masks that you could buy. And guess who needed those masks? Healthcare workers. And guess who didn't have enough of them? Healthcare workers, right? And we also had an illness that in March and April, we had only had experience in the United States of less than two months' knowledge about that disease. There was a lot we didn't know. So the messaging initially was don't go getting masks and wearing them out in public. And you know what? That was the right advice at that time because what were people doing? They were competing with healthcare workers to buy the same masks. And then the people in the hospital who had to have it couldn't have it. And we didn't even know, is it going to prevent infection in the outside world? So you couldn't really advocate it strongly then. And there was not an alternative like we have now with cloth and other material masks, right? Well, as we got more knowledge, we got more understanding, we got more information, I think we feel all very compellingly persuaded now that putting some kind of barrier over your nose and mouth to keep your secretions to yourself is an incredibly effective tool to mitigate or blunt or reduce the risk of exposure from an infected person to a non-infected person. I don't think any credible public health expert has any doubt that it's a useful tool. There are other things we can comment about. Well, do people wash them enough? If they touch their face and their mask more often or too much, can they contaminate themselves? All of those things are legitimate, but they are smaller points in the context of a much larger point which is we're trying to keep our secretions to ourselves and away from other people, all right? So I don't think anyone has any doubt now that the, that the non-medical grade masks for the general public are a very effective and very useful mitigation tool to blunt the spread of this disease. Of course, social distancing is the ultimate thing. If we all just stayed 30 to 40 feet away from each other, then we'd never have to wear any mask, particularly if we did it all outside, right? That's just not consistent with any kind of human existence that any of us can imagine. It's hard enough to stay six feet away from each other, let alone do 30 or 40 feet away from each other. So so the combination of space and masks are the two biggest tools we have right now. And, you know, that's old school, right? You've all seen or many of you have seen pictures from the 1918 influenza epidemic where they, they had you know, advertisements saying, you know, failure to wear a mask result in imprisonment and stuff like that. And I mean, so it's the same stuff. All that's old is new again. And this was from over a century ago, but it works. So for now and for the foreseeable future, you've heard all of this stuff. You've heard all of this. Wash your hands, wear a mask, watch your space, stay home if you're sick and get tested if you think you have COVID-19. So you have that information and you can know. So those are the same tools we've had all along, but the way we've used them and the way we've promoted them has changed over the course of this emergency response as we've learned more, understood more, and actually been able to demonstrate the effectiveness of those tools. So where are we right now? So this pathogen is surging widely throughout the United States, throughout Europe, and throughout a number of other countries. It is clearly escalating. It is particularly worrisome for us here in the Northern Hemisphere because winter is coming upon us. And so people are going to not be able to do outdoor activities like they were before. They're going to be drawn inside to stay warm. And when we go into closed, confined spaces with less air circulation, less ultraviolet radiation, less distance between ourselves, 
and quite honestly, more social pressure to deviate from wearing mask use, right? So we all wear these, well, I shouldn't say we all, I hope we all wear, or many of us certainly in this community for this kind of audience are wearing our masks because it makes just good sense. But I think we all know there are social pressures that make it difficult, right? We're, we're a very social species, right? We rely on seeing each other, facial expressions, body language. We rely on physical touch, right? I mean, putting your hand on a friend's shoulder, giving a hug, European, the, the two pecks on the cheek, if you're going to give, you know, the kiss as a greeting, that physical closeness is an inimical part of our human journey. And this disease forces you to have to do without that. And so when you get together with friends and family and others, the social pressure, our normal human hardwired behavior is in direct opposition to what we need people to do to not spread disease. So I would tell you that the disease is surging already, and that's before the really cold weather came. Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's Eve, these are alarming opportunities to make this whole thing go thermonuclear because you combine pretty much all of the worst things you could possibly hope for for a respiratory pathogen in the middle of a pandemic. You put everybody inside, you put large numbers of people inside because it's a social gathering. You bring people from different households in different geographic regions. You put them around a small table. You take your mask off so you can eat and drink, laugh and sing and joke and shout. And you do all the things you would exactly not want people to do to spread an infection. And let me just add a few other items for extra difficulty points. 20 to 40% of people have no symptoms. And yet we know that a proportion of those people with no known symptoms spread infection. And, and let's make it even worse. Some of those people are asymptomatic because they will never develop symptoms, but others are just pre-symptomatic, meaning that they could come over and have Thanksgiving dinner with you. Everybody has a fun time. And the next day they develop a fever. And, and we have shown pretty clearly that people are infectious for up to 48 hours, probably before they develop symptoms. So you can be asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic, but the end result is the same. You got no symptoms and you're spreading disease unknowingly. So it is not enough for people to say, well, I checked myself. I'm feeling fine. It's not enough. It may be enough for the common cold where it's inconvenient if you give someone a cough and a runny nose and two days of night will and sleeping at home and staying home from work. It's a totally different thing if you give someone COVID and they take it into a nursing home or they take it into, um, you know, a hospital or they take it to a vulnerable person living in their household. Totally different situation. So why are we surging? There's pandemic fatigue and that has set in everywhere, right? Is anyone, I mean, I can see a few faces here, but I think there's a lot more people watching from a distance. I mean, anybody here sick of this? Does anyone want this just to go away, Right. Well, magical thinking won't make it go away. So let's just put that out there. You can't wish it away. It's not a hoax. It's real. And there's, uh, I haven't looked at the total today, but there's certainly over 230,000 Americans who have died from this, over a million people in the world. Um, the all-cause mortality in a city like New York is through the roof. It's more than four times what it was for the previous three years. So clearly there is a huge surge in mortality. And COVID is now, I think, one of the top three causes, all-cause death in the United States, coronavirus this year. So this is a really, really big deal. The other thing is, unfortunately, public health has become politicized. 
So a mask is nothing more than a barrier to keep your snot to yourself, okay? Your snot and your spit and your own proximity. That's all a mask is. There's no other statement being made. There's no other comment being made. It is pure public health, but it has become politicized. In the United States, in Brazil, other places, there's other, I mean, we're not alone in the United States. And I'll touch on that in a minute, the value of perspective. And then there is this other part that kind of goes into the politicization, but is not exactly the same. There is kind of a smoldering repudiation of science, kind of in general, right? There's sort of this growing, and maybe it isn't growing, but but maybe it's attention humanity always has. I, I don't know. But there is this repudiation of science and this skepticism about the things that science recommends or advises or observes. And I think that combination of things, pandemic fatigue, politicization, and just this trend or this resistance against science contribute to this fatigue. I think the biggest thing is just overall fatigue and wanting it to be gone, though. There's a lot of people hurting, and let's not lose sight of the human side, not just the people who are sick or go in the hospital. People have lost their jobs. They've lost their businesses. Kids aren't in school. People have lost their social activity. Um, it, it has been horribly devastating, this virus, in all sorts of ways. It's disrupted our lives. And so I think pandemic fatigue, probably more than anything else, comes about from that and then the politicization. So we would predict that increasing cases will result in increasing hospitalizations and ICU admissions. And that is what we're seeing in Kentucky. So we are steadily, we are seeing a steady increase in the number of people hospitalized from COVID-19, the number of people going into the intensive care unit. Now, that's not good. And it, it will overwhelm some parts of our resources at some point in the weeks and months ahead. But it is different than what we saw. At least it appears different than what China experienced in Northern Italy. Even though there's a substantial proportion of people who are openly violating the public health guidance, even though we don't have a cure, even though we don't have a vaccine, we do have still a large proportion who are socially distancing. We still have a large proportion who are wearing masks. We now know that a dirt cheap, multi-decade-old steroid called Decadron, and it's probably a therapeutic class effect, so steroids can help in the right setting with people who have severe COVID-19 infection. We've also learned how to handle better people who have respiratory problems. And so I think when you put all of these things together, and we're taking a lot of aggressive steps to still protect the most vulnerable populations. So here's the thing. People get falsely confident that, well, just, just keep it away from the nursing home residents. Well, it's not that easy because the staff members go from place to place. They often work in different nursing homes, and then they bring in infection. And they don't know because they're asymptomatic or presymptomatic. And then now one person brings in infection, infects one or two residents, and next thing you know, the whole place starts having infection run through it. But even though all of these measures are imperfect, in aggregate, they have blunted the severity that we would otherwise expect. So none of those models from the spring really have any applicability now because it's not at all likely that that set of variables will ever unfold the way that those models initially were conceived. Again, non-science believers have a hard time with this. All those models were wrong, but they were all very helpful. They all helped to inform decision-making, actions that had to be taken. But in the fact that they didn't predict what would happen is the wrong observation to make to criticize the value of them. 
They helped to guide intervention so that we never saw the reality that they predicted could have unfolded, right? So they were very useful. That was Dr. Stephen Stack, Commissioner of the Kentucky Department of Public Health, in his November 6, 2020 keynote address to the Kentucky Academy of Science. We'll be bringing you the second part of his talk at a later date, so stay tuned. I'm Dave Robinson, and this has been Bench Talk, The Week in Science.